This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, July 7th. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Virginia Allen. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of election integrity last week, upholding two Arizona voting laws designed to prevent voter fraud. Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich argued the case before the Supreme Court. He joins the podcast today to explain why these election laws help protect the integrity of the state's elections. The attorney general also responds to the left's claim that the Arizona voting laws are discriminatory. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. And now, on to today's top news. Nicole Hannah-Jones, author of the controversial New York Times 1619 Project, has declined a tenured position at the University of North Carolina. Instead, Hannah-Jones has accepted a position as night chair in race and reporting at Howard University in D.C. The question of Hannah-Jones' tenure became highly controversial earlier this year when the University of North Carolina initially denied her tenure. Last week, the university trustees voted to approve her tenure after they received a great deal of backlash for first denying it. But on CBS This Morning, Hannah Jones says she does not want to work at a university where there is so much controversy over her tenure. Take a listen. Look what it took to get tenure. So this was a position that since the 1980s came with tenure. Uh, The night chairs are designed for professional journalists when working in the field to come into academia. And every other chair before me, who also happened to be white, received that position with tenure. I it had never that. been denied. No one had never. ever been denied tenure before. Exactly. And I went through the tenure process, and I received the unanimous approval of the faculty uh, to be granted tenure. And so to be denied it and to only have that vote occur on the last possible day, at the last possible moment, after threat of legal action, after weeks of protest, after it became a national scandal. It's just not something that I want anymore. Some historians criticize the 1619 Project for containing inaccuracies. Alan C. Gelzo, a historian at Princeton University, says the 1619 Project is riddled with mistakes and exaggerations. A D.C. man appealed to the Supreme Court on Tuesday to block a CDC-backed federal mask mandate, claiming that the mandate is unconstitutional. The plaintiff in the case, Lucas Wall, originally filed a lawsuit against the CDC back in June after TSA officers refused to let him board a flight out of Orlando for not wearing a mask in accordance with federal law, even though he says he has a qualifying disability that legally allows him to go maskless. According to the Washington Examiner, Wall wrote that the mask mandate violates his freedom to travel, his right to due process, and states' rights to decide their own mask requirements. He asked that the Supreme Court issue an emergency injunction overriding the CDC's order. The case comes on the heels of a narrowly decided Supreme Court case involving a CDC order mandating nationwide eviction moratoria. While the court upheld the order, Justice Brett Kavanaugh signaled he would have voted to strike the order down if there wasn't a hard end date. Ibram X. Kendi, author of the book How to Be an Anti-Racist and an Advocate for Critical Race Theory, is scheduled to speak Wednesday to teachers at the American Federation of Teachers National Convention. The conference agenda says that Kendi's lecture will be a discussion on developing anti-racist mindsets and actions inside and outside classrooms. 
Indiana Representative Jim Banks wrote in a Daily Signal piece earlier this year that Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist is extremist, anti-American, and divisive, and should not be officially promoted by any part of our government. The National Education Association, which is the largest teachers union in the United States, recently passed a resolution to teach critical race theory in American schools. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich as we discuss the Supreme Court's decision to uphold Arizona's election integrity laws. The Heritage Foundation has a new website to combat critical race theory. CRT, as it's known, makes race the centerpiece of all aspects of American life. It categorizes individuals into groups of oppressors and victims. The idea is infiltrating everything from our politics and education to the workplace and even our military. Heritage has pulled together the resources that you need to identify CRT in your community and the ways to fight it. We also have a legislation tracker so you can see what's happening in your state. Visit heritage.org slash CRT to learn more. I am so pleased to welcome to the show Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich. Attorney General, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much, Virginia, for having me. Last week, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to three to uphold Arizona's election integrity laws. This specific conflict over Arizona's election laws centered on the state's regulation, both of ballot harvesting and on limitations of out-of-precinct voting. So back in 2016, the Democrat National uh, Committee, they challenged these laws. Explain why the DNC sued the state over these election laws. Well, Virginia, I'm always reluctant to try to put words in other people's <laughs> mouths, but I will just say this, is that uh, not only in Arizona, but other jurisdictions, you have a lot of left-wing groups and you have the Democratic National Committee, uh, you know, targeting swing states, red states, so to speak, uh, challenging their election integrity measures. And so in Arizona, there were... Um, you know, limits on how ballots can be harvested, that means how they can be collected by non-family members. And there's also uh, requirements and statutes dealing with how to handle out-of-precinct voting and limiting uh, the ability of people to uh, vote out-of-precinct. So the DNC challenged those laws. Um, We actually won um, after a 10-day trial at the federal district court And then, of course, they appealed it to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit struck those laws down, and we were able to get a stay, and then ultimately appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court, where I personally argued the the case, and as you said, we won six to three. Yeah. Well, ballot harvesting, uh, for those that don't know, it's the practice of a third party that's collecting ballots and delivering them to a polling place. So why did Arizona decide that this practice was a threat to the state's election integrity and it was something that you wanted to do away with? Well, first and foremost, we know that uh, no less than the New York Times in 2012 was writing about the the dangers and concerns related to mail-in balloting and how you know that could lead to disenfranchisement. And as we pointed out in our briefs, and you know, it came up during oral argument that when former Vice President Jimmy Carter, a liberal Democrat, and former Secretary of State James Baker conducted a bipartisan election commission, they issued a report in 2005, and Jimmy Carter noted that one of the greatest threats to election integrity was 
this practice of ballot harvesting or mail-in ballots when third, where third parties can handle and collect your ballots. So states like Arizona adopted common sense election integrity measures, you know, that were consistent with that Baker card report. And one of those was the fact that we did not want third parties, that is political candidates or political parties, parties handling ballots. And as Justice Alito pointed out in his majority opinion, I mean, there's a whole myriad of reasons for that. But frankly, you have to look no less than the 2018 congressional election in North Carolina, where a seat remained vacant for nearly a year because one of the candidates um, engaged in you know, ballot harvesting and selectively you know, manipulated ballots that were against him and for him. And so you know, this is something that's not theoretical. It's happened. And we know that it's happened in other jurisdictions. So state of Arizona, like other states, adopted measures to try to limit the impact um, that ballot harvesting and could have on, you know, voters. Hmm. That's interesting. Interesting to hear that history that this uh, has not always been a partisan issue, that there used to be a consensus around the fact that uh, the ba- ballot harvesting, you know, on both sides of the aisle, we're saying this isn't something that we want. Yeah. And we know even here in Phoenix, you know, the evidence came out during the 10 day trial that, uh, you know, a former um, city councilman who was African-American testified in favor of the law. He had expressed concerns about ballot harvesters uh, misrepresenting themselves as election workers or government workers. And in fact, in 2015, the city of Phoenix actually actually had to issue a warning because people were going around claiming to be election officials. So, you know, this is something that, you know, that was historically a, a nonpartisan issue. As I said, that no less than the New York Times had you know, identified this concern in 2012. And Jimmy Carter, the great liberal icon, had also expressed concerns and called it one of the greatest threats to election integrity. So this shouldn't be a partisan issue. It shouldn't even be a philosophical issue. It's quite frankly about preserving not only the integrity of the elections, but people's confidence in the results. And what about uh, out-of-precinct voting? Why should an individual not be uh, allowed to vote in a precinct other than their own? Well, Virginia, one of the things that I I just would note right at the beginning that's so important is the Constitution provides that states can set time, place, and manner. Um, They can set how the time, place, and manner of their state elections are conducted. Mm -hmm. You know, as I've said before, you know, what works in Manhattan, New York, may not be the same that will work in Manhattan, Kansas. And Virginia Beach is a lot different than, you know, Solano Beach, you know, mm-hmm. in California. So uh, we need to recognize that the Constitution allows states to enact election integrity measures. The framers of our Constitution under, understood that. And out of precinct voting, uh, basically, uh, there are limitations on that that have existed for years, for decades. In fact, as we pointed out in our briefs, a majority of states, and even the District of Columbia, have limitations on out of precinct votings. Those regulations came about because um, some counties, some states wanted to ensure order in their elections. And so it requires that people vote um, or cast their ballots in their assigned precinct. That way you can confirm easily if, you know, if that voter is indeed a voter in that, pre- or that precinct. Um, you can also uh, you know, minimize the costs with having you know, ballots rejected or not rejected. And the reality is, is that if you have... Uh, if people are voting outside of their precinct, that means they may be impacting local races, whether it's a city council or even, you know, state legislative races. And so you would be disenfranchising, you know, uh, folks depending on what precinct they were or weren't voting in. And ultimately, 
you know, there are, you, you want to make sure that there's, there's order and not chaos and you don't have all these costs associated without a precinct voting. But as we pointed out in our briefs, and this is really important, Virginia, in Arizona, we have uh, early voting up to, uh, in person, up to thir- uh, 27 days, nearly a month before the election. There are ballot drop-off locations. You know, some places allow for drive-up you know, ballot drop-off. So there's a whole myriad of ways, including mail-in ballots, where people can exercise the franchise. So this is one of those classic red herring examples that the left tries to use, that they try to, you know, use the courts to make, you know, election law or change election law in certain states. And the reality is the Supreme Court rejected that argument. And as I said, a, you know, this is not some sort of crazy outlier you know, standard, a majority of, of states have some sort of similar statutes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, like you said, the Supreme Court did reject that argument that the Arizona laws somehow suppress votes and they ruled uh, six to three that you know they're going to uphold Arizona's election laws. So why is this Supreme Court ruling significant for other states that have or are seeking to enact election reform legislation in order to safeguard elections from fraud? Well, I literally said at the beginning of my oral argument that there is no more sacred duty for public servants than protecting the right to vote, but we have to maintain confidence in the integrity of the results. And so this case is so important, and some have argued that it's the most important case this term, is because it really sends a clear message that states do have the ability to uh, you know, control their, their local or their state elections. And we don't want to nationalize our elections for a lot of reasons. And that's why S1 and HB1 are really, really troubling on a lot of levels. Uh, I do think that it, it does mean that if the Department of Justice you know, tries to go after a state um, you know, saying that there's a you know, Section 2 violation of the Voting Rights Act, I think the courts sh- will be, and they should be, very dubious of any of those claims. And so I think this really is important because it allows states to enact common sense election integrity measures um, and really to make sure that not only are are the results accurate and there's integrity in the process, but we want to have people, we want people to have confidence in the process as well. Mm, Yeah, that's so critical. Well, unfortunately, many on the left were not pleased with this ruling. Uh, After the ruling, President Joe Biden said he was deeply disappointed in the decision by the United States Supreme Court that undercuts the Voting Rights Act and upholds what Justice Kagan called a significant race-based disparity in voting opportunities. What is your response to the president's words here? Well, I think the president is either confused or being hypocritical because the Biden administration's own Justice Department, when asked to weigh in by the court, essentially agreed that these statutes are consistent with the Voting Rights Act. And second, and I hope all listeners to this podcast hear this and recognize this, is that I think what the Biden administration said and what the far left has said exposes the glaring hypocrisy of Democratic Party leadership. I mean, we know that in case after case, they try to argue and 
that, especially in battleground states like Arizona and Georgia, that somehow these statutes disenfranchise voters. And that's simply not the case. I mean, obviously the Supreme Court said they're constitutional. But I just want to point out as a matter of policy, look at what's going on in states that Democrats politically control. If they actually believed these types of statutes are disenfranchising voters, then why aren't they doing anything in their own states? We know that in places like Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, New York, New Jersey, Virginia, they, they don't permit any sort of curing for ballots. Um, we know that in states like Colorado, Delaware, Hawaii, Maine, New Mexico, the list goes on and on, Oregon, that um, you know, there's, there's requirements dealing with um, when ballots have to be postmarked by. And we know that in states like New Jersey, where they re recently enacted legislation that allows nine days of early voting or in-person voting, that um, that's still a third of what Arizona offers, and it's nearly uh, half of what states like Georgia offer. We know that in a lot of jurisdictions like Delaware, Connecticut, New York, they, you have to have some bureaucrat approve whether you want to get an absentee ballot. That's not the case in Arizona or Georgia. So I think what we have seen is the hypocrisy on the left on full display because there is a whole plethora of Democratic-controlled states, especially in the Northeast, where there is actually less opportunity and less access to the ballot box. And so, um, you know, facts are peculiar things, and the left hypocrisy, I think, is being exposed. I think sometimes the issue for people that believe in the Constitution, believe in the rule of law, is that they don't push back hard enough on this narrative. And, and the reality is that not only is the Constitution on our side, but the facts are on our side, and we need to make sure we're pushing back against these false narratives of the left because they are trying to coach this or make this, uh, even Justice Kagan's dissent, somehow an either-or proposition that you either have to be for more access you know, or more voting, or you want voter integrity. And the reality is it is not an either-or choice. Uh, we can have more voting. We can have more access to the ballot. We can have record turnout, but we can also have integrity and confidence in the results. Well, and why is it then that the left is so attacking states like Georgia and, and Arizona for their election laws if, you know, states, uh, like you say, like, you know, New Jersey, Maine, New York have, you know, somewhat similar voting laws or, or laws that could be seen as somehow restricting elections. What uh, What is really the purpose or the agenda that the left has here? I think it's clear, on, on especially when it comes to voting, is that the left, uh, the hard left, the DNC and other left-wing groups are trying to do everything they can to control the state election process because they think that will benefit them. I also think that we've seen, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum. And I think you have to look at this from a, a macro perspective. When you see bills like S-1, H.R. 1 that are designed to nationalize elections, give the federal government control of elections, I think that's all about control. The far left wants to control you know, not only our property rights and our economy through high taxes and high regulation, um, they also want to control our elections through federal statutes. And once you can control people's livelihoods, once you can control their economic future, and once you can control elections, you can control the way people vote. And so I think that this is all part of the Democratic plan. And, you know, once again, I would just ask my friends on the left that if ballot harvesting is such a terrible thing, then why didn't you sue 
in New Mexico or Nevada, even Virginia, where there's very similar laws. And I think that's the answer because they control the processes in those states, so they seem to not care about what goes on there, but they care about these swing states like Georgia and Arizona because they think they can game it, game the results, control the results, and ultimately by you know making all sorts of outrageous allegations, they can browbeat or intimidate you know companies and I'll call it the Chamber of Commerce crowd into doing their bidding for them. Hmm. Well, you mentioned um, S-1 or For the People Act, and a little over a week ago, Senate Republicans uh, blocked a federal election bill, which is the For the People Act. Uh, this bill would take, as you say, a lot of power away from states and hand it to the federal government to have control over elections. Do you think Democrats are going to continue to really try to press this legislation forward, even though we've we've seen it be blocked? Yeah, I think that... The left, what we saw, especially after this decision, was two things. One is them calling for expanding the Supreme Court or making changes to the court. And two, they said, or they used this as their rationale or their reason to try to get H.R. 1 or S. 1 passed or moving forward. And so they are going to use this case as an opportunity to expand uh, the size and scope of the federal government. And, you know, they're not happy with the results. So essentially they want to, you know, change the referees or change the rules in the middle of the game. And, of course, if you believe in the rule of law and you believe in consistency and certainty in the application of the law, what they are proposing is absolutely the antithesis to that. And this notion that we are going to have the federal government take over our campaigns and do everything from essentially subsidizing political candidates by this by some of these matches to uh, not allowing states to have common sense election integrity measures like you know not allowing you know states to have voter ID laws, not allow states to implement you know measures related to you know ballot harvesting, it is not consistent with what the framers designed our constitutional system to be. Um, and quite frankly, it is a huge power grab uh, by D.C. and it will empower bureaucrats. And I think anyone, whether they're Democrat, Republican or independent, that cares about uh, freedom and liberty and the Constitution has to recognize that this is not it's just a ter- those are terrible bills, terrible ideas. And they're not only inconsistent with the Constitution, but just bad public policy. Mm. Attorney General, let's take just a moment and talk about the 2020 election in Arizona. Ballots are still being recounted in Maricopa County, Arizona, from the 2020 presidential election. How how do things stand right now? And uh, any ideas on, on when that recount will be completed? They are moving forward. We have not received any sort of final report or recommendation. But, you know, I have previously said, and our, our courts here in Arizona confirmed, that the Arizona Senate has the authority to conduct the audit. Uh, we actually filed a brief saying, you know, if you believe in the Constitution and separa- separation of powers, you know, that means that you have to defer to co-equal branches of government and how they conduct their business. So we have, you know, said that the Senate has a right to conduct that audit. But, you know, one of the things that I've learned in, in my career, you know, as a prosecutor and as a litigator is never to comment on, you know, ongoing investigations. And so, Uh, I think we need to be patient while the Senate completes the audit and, you know, we'll see what they come up with. And as I said, we'll make sure we review any sort of recommendations um, that they provide to us. Mm. You know, I think a lot of Americans lost some trust in, in our election system after the 2020 election. How do we go about restoring that trust? 
I think people need to recognize that um, you know, we are doing everything in our office we can to ensure the integrity of elections. And even this last election cycle, Virginia, there was about half a dozen times where we had to intervene in cases. And in fact, we have an argument tomorrow at the Ninth Circuit dealing with our ballot curing procedures. And the left tried to change those at the last minute here in Arizona, and we fought back. The reason why the case is called Brnovich v. DNC is because I stepped up when other officials wouldn't and made sure we defended our existing integrity laws. Uh, we know that when the county recorder tried to send out mail-in ballots to everyone, whether they requested them or not, during the presidential preference election, we went into court and stopped that, uh, you know, based on it uh, being an expenditure of public funds. So there, there are a lot of things that we have to do on the front end to prevent the chaos in the back end, like we saw in other states. And so, you know, I'm doing my part. I also think that we need to make sure that uh, we have common sense election integrity measures that instill that confidence in people in the results. Mm. And historically, when it comes to election integrity, what are the things that we know help to ensure that elections remain free and fair? Well, I think every state, every jurisdiction is different. As I said, what happens or what works in Manhattan, Kansas may not be the same that what works in Arizona. But we know absolutely that people have to have faith in the confidence faith and confidence in the process. We know there are a lot of people that fought very hard over the years, over the decades, to ensure that every person has the right to vote, and we want to make sure that no one is disenfranchised, but there are all sorts of measures, uh, you know, like I said, the, the ones in Arizona where we have, you know, put in place common sense election integrity measures, I think those work, and I think that it's important that, as the court even noted, that you have to look at this, all, all these measures in context. And in states like Arizona, where we have a whole plethora, where there are a whole lot of ways for people to exercise the franchise, you know, everything from, you know, no excuse absentee balloting, you know, almost a month of, you know, in-person voting, ballot collection centers, you know, there, there are a whole way, list of ways that people can exercise the franchise, and we just want to make sure that in conjunction with that, that there are measures in place uh, that ensure the integrity of the process. Excellent. Attorney General, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you joining the show. Thank you so much, Virginia. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks again for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow morning. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.